I invite you to turn with me to the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. We are going to read Daniel chapter 7, the verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." We now turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 22.
Luke chapter 22, we will overlap a little bit with what we read last week, last time. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now we come to our text. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to the council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when someone is going to die, we usually pay very close attention 
to his last words. You don't expect people at that stage to waste their breath. So if they say anything, it's probably going to be important. Our text this morning is the last words of Jesus to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a religious court composed of high priests, elders, scribes, and people like that, and it was presided over by the ruling high priest. It was the highest Jewish court in the land. Jesus was brought to this court. And so what we read this morning is his last words to the Sanhedrin. It's also their last words to him. Now, what's really interesting about this text is if you compare what they said, it's clear that both Jesus and the Sanhedrin were quoting Scripture. It was the Scriptures, ultimately, that stood between them. The Sanhedrin stood as the officially recognized interpreters of those Scriptures, and Jesus stood as the fulfillment. Jesus presents himself as the fulfillment of these Scriptures, and the Sanhedrin understands him completely. He claims to be the Son of Man and the Son of God, and they fully confirm those claims. Ultimately, however, they reject both Christ and his claims. And even as they do so, he still extends grace to them. So what we are confronted with this morning is raw unbelief in the face of great grace. So this morning we'll consider how Jesus' accusers confirm his identity. They confirm his identity as the Son of Man, and they confirm his identity as the Son of God. Now, if you've been reading the um, narrative surrounding Good Friday and Easter, maybe you've done so at home the last number of weeks, you would have compared the Gospels and you would have noticed something interesting. The Gospels appear to be different. For instance, Matthew and Mark describe false witnesses who testify against him. And they also describe how the high priest tore his clothing when Jesus said that he would sit at the right hand of God. You don't find any of that in this passage. Why is that? Well, the reason is because Jesus appeared before the Jewish religious leaders multiple times. If you compare the various accounts, it becomes clear that Matthew and Mark have a more extensive description of what happened in the evening right after Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. Verse 54 of our reading alludes to that as well. But in our, our text, verses 66 to 71 focuses on what happened the next morning. In the evening, Jesus had been brought to the house of the high priest, and he, he was put under trial. But according to rabbinic law, a man could only be sentenced in the morning in an official session. It had to be official, not just a night in someone's private home. So that's why they had to have another official session with him in the morning. That's what our text describes. So what this means essentially is that in the, the morning court session that Luke describes um, was uh, what you would call a kangaroo court. It was a sham trial. It involved many of the same people who had been there the night before at the unofficial illegal session at the high priest's house. They had already decided the verdict then. They just needed to make it legal now. That's why they only wanted to ask some very specific questions there's no real proper trial here. They're, they're after something. They want Jesus to say something incriminating so that they can sentence him and be done with it. 
So the Sanhedrin asked Jesus if he was the Christ. What does Christ mean? It means anointed one. In the Gospel of Luke, this is a regal title. When Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, he was publicly acknowledged by God, publicly anointed with the Holy Spirit. And anointing was something that happened both to priests and to kings in the Old Testament. It meant that they were officially acknowledged by God, officially endowed with His Spirit. So when the Sanhedrin asks him if he is the Christ, they're not just asking him a question in the sense of who are you, they're asking him about his authority. Is he really the Messiah? Does he really have the authority that comes from God alone? In his response, Jesus says both less than they ask and more. He knows that they have already made up their minds, so he's not going to give them a direct answer. Instead, he says in verse 67, he says to them, if, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So in saying this, he's exposing their lack of faith. They're not going to believe him regardless of what he says. But he's also exposing their refusal to engage with the truth in the first place. If he were to ask them, they would not answer because they're not interested in the truth anyway. The problem is not just that they won't believe him. The problem is that at heart they're not interested in the answer regardless of what it is. They've already made up their minds. So in his response, he's critical of their unbelief. He leaves their question unanswered. But at the same time, he tells them much more than they ask. In verse 69, he says to them, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's first of all a reference to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this, that Psalm, Psalm 110, re refers to this person at the right hand of God, both in terms of being a king and of being a priest. But there's also a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel describes a vision here of the empires of the world coming out of the sea in the form of four beasts. And it's the chaos of nations. It's one coming after the other, clawing its way to the top. And the last one, the one with the iron teeth, is the Roman Empire. So the Sanhedrin knows about the Roman Empire. They're well aware of what this prophecy means. Now, the verses 13 to 14, which we read this morning from Daniel chapter 7, is key to understanding our text. In verses 13 and 14, he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." So here, one like a son of man is presented before the ancient of days, that's God, and he's presented to rule forever. So why does he look like a son of man? Because he is a son of man. In other words, he is truly human, but he's also God because he has the dominion of God and he receives the rule of God and the worship of God. So Daniel prophetically looked into the future and he saw Christ sitting down at the right hand of the power of God. 
So when we take these two texts together, Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7, and, um, and see how, um, how they're worked with, Daniel is saying, Christ will be a priest who will serve forever, a king who will rule forever. And Jesus says, that's him. Are they priests? He will surpass them all. Are they rulers? He will rule over them all. With these few words, Jesus asserts his authority over them. When he says, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, he is challenging them on their own turf. And they know that. And what's more, he's taking this moment that they're in, this situation, and he's placing it in the much greater context of God's ultimate judgment over the world. Now you think about this. Try to picture the scene in your mind, the glory that he's claiming for himself by alluding to this prophecy is much greater. It totally contradicts his current situation. But it's through that situation, through his judgment by this Sanhedrin, that that future vision of Daniel, that vision of the future will be fulfilled. He says it himself, he says, this is happening from now on. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In other words, all of the things that you're going to do to me tonight will bring this to fulfillment. The Son of Man is going to be executed, but after that he will be exalted. One day they're going to see him as judge. These men sitting before him are judging him in an earthly court. One day they will appear before him in the heavenly court. So if you want to talk about last words, this is something else. Jesus is not only telling these men that he will return from the grave, he's saying to them, one day they will have to give account to him for what they're doing right now. But at the same time, Jesus left something out. At an earlier point in time, he'd referred to this imagery from Daniel 7 as well. Daniel described one who came with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus knew about that. He knew about what Daniel had said. Because in Luke 21, verse 27, he said that at the end of time, people will see the Son of Man, same terminology, coming in a cloud with great power and glory. It's an allusion back to the same prophecy. So this element of the second coming on the clouds with power and great glory points to the universal judgment at the end of time. But here... Jesus, in our text today, he doesn't, he doesn't refer to the cloud. He doesn't refer to that glory. Why not? It's, he obviously knew the text, so this was not an oversight. And remember, every word counts what is included, but also the ones that are left out. So, so why did he leave it out? Well, by leaving it out, he's focusing on his identity as the one who sits on at God's right hand. That's all he's focusing on here, his identity. The judgment is definitely still there, but it's in the background. The spotlight right now was on his identity as a son of man. He's pointing at his future glory. He's pointing at his identity. He's not focusing so much on the judgment at the end of time, although that is there, but it's, it's lurking in the background. So why do that? Why take this very specific prophecy that they both knew so well with all of the uh, things that it implied, and, and then why leave out one part and focus especially on another? 
Well, he wants to confront them one more time with the question of who he is. He's given them enough information to know the answer. They know. So in a sense, he's giving them one last chance to repent. He's giving them one last chance to reconsider the disastrous course that they're on. He's saying, think about who you're doing this to. This is the Christ, the anointed one, the fulfillment of all of your prophecies, of all of your scriptures. That's grace. In the very act of rejecting Christ, his people are still being confronted one more time with who he is. He still gives them that opportunity. He still points them back to the scriptures because these are the scriptures that testify about him. Think about the, the grace. What an incredible display of grace to people who so utterly rejected him. So where do we stand on that question Because the words that Jesus spoke to those people were recorded for us as well. By reading this passage, we're being confronted with the same question of identity and the same question of authority. Do you recognize him as your Savior? Do you recognize him as the Christ? And if so, do you recognize him as your Lord as well? Is he king of your life? This is really the only question that matters in life. We might have lots of other questions about lots of other things. And they're all important in their own way, but this one is the only one that really matters. There's no way around it. Whether you ignore the question or not, whether you outright reject them or not, the question still stands. It will not go away. Who is Jesus? How are you going to respond to him? You. If you're not willing to engage with this question, if you're not willing to answer it in this life, You will have to answer it in the hereafter, but then it will be too late. So this passage extends the very same grace to us this morning as it did to those people. This is is the gospel. We're there together with the Sanhedrin being asked the same question. Do not reject his grace. So the Sanhedrin confirms his identity as a son of man. And also as the Son of God. We're going to pay attention to that next. So how do they respond to this? Christ has pointed them back to the Scriptures. And they know their Scriptures fluently. These were people who knew their Old Testament far better than you or I did or do. They were able to quote large parts of it from memory. They, they knew exactly what he was saying. They know their Scriptures fluently. But that doesn't mean that they believe that it applies to them. And that's always the problem, isn't it? Knowing the Scriptures does not make you a believer. Do you realize that? Knowing the Scriptures does not make you a believer. Satan knows the Scriptures. The devil can quote chapter and verse. did that in Matthew 4, for example, and he tempted Jesus. So knowledge is not enough. You need faith as well. And they understand what he's saying. They've got the knowledge. They even respond by quoting Scripture themselves. But do they have faith? It may not be obvious to us right away that they're quoting Scripture. It's um, the first time you read this, it's easy to miss what's actually going on. But compare verses 69 with verse 70. Verse 69 and 70. Look at what they say. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And you would expect them to ask, so are you the Son of Man then? But they don't do that. 
They bring in something new into the conversation. They say, are you the son of God? He, he has not used that phrase in that conversation. Why did they bring it in? Where did they get this from? They got it from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says that the one who sits at God's right hand is his son. The Sanhedrin knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. It is as if the prosecution and the defendant are speaking to each other in Bible verses. And the prosecution incriminates itself. They ask, are you the son of God then? And Jesus replies, you say that I am. Notice he isn't just answering the question. He doesn't just say, yes, I am. He says, you say that I am. In other words, what you said is true. What you said is true. You said it, it came out of your mouth. They're incriminated by their own words. The earthly religious court has put the heavenly Son of God on trial. They're about to convict him, but it's not the end of the matter. There is a higher court of appeal. The psalm they quoted against them stands as their own indictment. One day he will crush all those who oppose him. And that sets them off. They know exactly what he meant here. What further testimony do we need, they say. We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Yes, they have. They could not have legally convicted him without his help. Jesus knew that. But he goes to the cross willingly. He goes as the one who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the one in whom both the the human and divine natures were perfectly united, rejected by his fellow beings, rejected by God, but all according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures that his accusers took on their lips, the Scriptures that he fulfilled the scriptures that ultimately stood between them. And he did this for you. He did this so that you might believe those scriptures, that you yourself might know that he is the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus was sentenced by the religious leadership of his day, but it wasn't just their sentence. Behind their sentence stood the sentence of his father, the one who sentenced his son through the mouths of the priests who served in his temple. They accurately confirmed his identity. Yes, he was the son of God. This is why the father convicted him. One more step in the rejection of his son, the sin bearer. One more rejection by the Levitical priests of the one who was an eternal priest. He was not just the priest, but also the sacrifice, about to be sacrificed by sinners. Four sinners. Jesus was sentenced by the religious leadership of his day. They accurately confirmed his identity. No misunderstanding was possible. They understood exactly who he claimed to be. They just didn't believe him. That's why ultimately they had him crucified. The presence of Jesus forced them to respond. In the same way, the words of Jesus are forcing us to respond today. You cannot be personally confronted with this passage and remain neutral. You cannot be personally confronted with the claims of Jesus, the Son of the living God, and remain indifferent. Either you worship Him as your Lord or you reject Him in vicious hatred, but you cannot remain in the middle. You cannot remain undecided. You cannot remain indifferent. That option is not there, certainly not in this passage. 
So Jesus was led off to Pilate. And you would think that this was the end of his conversation with the Jews. But it's not. In his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter revisits some of these same themes in the same words. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 2. Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the verses starting at verse 32. So this is after, this is during Pentecost. Then Peter has gotten up to preach. He's preaching to the crowds. And he says, starting at verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So do you see what he did here? It's all there, exalted at the right hand of God. And the quote from Psalm 110. That was a Jesus who crucified, he says. There's echoes here of Daniel 7. There's a, a quote from Psalm 110. He says, this is a Jesus that you crucified. And then at last the people are cut to the heart. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do and look at what he says, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the gospel in the most glorious terms possible because this is the nation that rejected Christ. And now they're exposed to the gospel one more time from beyond the grave. The very fact that Christ is ruling today makes it possible for that gospel to be spread both through his word and his spirit. Not only does he call sinners to repentance and continue to do so, but he renews them and he pours out his spirit on them. Could he show us any more grace than that? Could he show us any more grace than he does at this very moment? Because this is where we're at today. We live in this in-between time. Christ is now seated at the right hand of his Father, as he said, he's poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. That's, that gospel through that spirit is proclaimed to you every week. And if Psalm 110 was fulfilled, you can count on it that the rest of Daniel 7 will be fulfilled as well. One day he will return on the clouds. The judgment that he underwent was for the sake of sinners. That's us. And he still graciously is extending the gospel invitation to us. But in the background is the ominous tone of Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, because one day He will return on a day set by the Father, and that day will be unstoppable. The first time He came in meekness, the first time He was humbled, He was rejected, He was crucified. But the next time, He's coming in glory, and He will break them with a rod of iron, and He will dash the nations to pieces like a potter's vessel. So take that seriously. Kiss the sun, lest you perish.
So as we draw closer to Good Friday, let us take this warning to heart because we do know the identity of the one who was crucified. We know who he was. That identity cannot be denied. He had the last word. He spoke those words and he extended forgiveness through those words in the face of the darkest sin of all. And if he did that then, then he can extend grace to anyone, anywhere. If he forgave this, he can forgive us. And that's comforting. So let us also come to him with all of our doubts, with all of our fears, with all of our shortcomings, with all of our sins. Let us acknowledge him as our Savior and our Lord. And then we can be sure he will acknowledge us before his Father in the life to come. Amen.